Hello, and welcome back to the Brothers Book Club Podcast. We are here with episode 34. This is our episode 34 in our collection of Penguin Little Black Classics reviews. If you're unfamiliar with the show, we are taking these 50-ish pages books that Penguin collected, the publisher, and they are classics of world literature, and we are reviewing one per week, trying to give recommendations, reading recommendations, uh, for you, our precious listeners. So thanks for checking in. Again, this is episode 34. Today we're going to be covering a short story collection by Anton Chekhov, uh, who was a Russian writer kind of around the turn of the century, late 1800s. And they collected, Penguin did, three of his short stories, of which he wrote apparently uh, hundreds. Don't know how many were published in his time, but the uh, the internet tells me there are hundreds of these. He's a, quite an influential short story author. And so there are three of them in this collection. That's what I'll be reviewing today. And uh, that's what we'll be talking about. I'm going to immediately go out on a bit of a limb and assume that if you've heard the name Anton Chekhov before, it is because of a expression, or I guess you could call it a trope, in uh, television, movies, and literature that has been popularized in the last, I don't even know how long, at least 20 years or so, called Chekhov's Gun, um, which is almost idiomatic at this point. If you like thinking about stories and narrative, um, it's an expression that I'm, again, feel pretty confident to say you've heard. And yes, he did originate this quote. Um, it weirdly was hard to find an exact source online. Wikipedia, our trusty research partner here on the pod, had a couple of sources, but they're, you know, they're academic works. They're things that would not be in an ordinary library, uh, books that are hard to track down. Uh, and they had a few quotes from it. Apparently he repeated this phrase in a few letters and correspondence or in essays. And so, you know, the phrase is ubiquitous um, and it's easy to find. Though, yeah, weirdly translated versions from Russian and the actual original source or the earliest source, not so easy to find. Um, not that it's that essential. If he didn't actually say this uh, or didn't actually write this at any point, it's pretty much too late to undo it now. It's entered the, the idiomatic or mythological status in terms of language use. So anyway, yes, he did originate the phrase Chekhov's gun. If you don't know what that expression means, it has a pretty simple explanation. Narratively speaking, it is a element of a story. It could be a symbol or an object or some occurrence. And he just believed that if you introduce something, even a small element, that it should pay off later or narratively have a purpose later on. In other words, or in his example, if the author describes that there's a gun on a wall, that gun should go off at some point or should be fired. Otherwise, it has no purpose being mentioned, essentially. And so I think translated into even simpler language, um, perhaps what I would have presented to my middle school students when I was teaching middle school, if you're going to include any word, phrase, or expression, have a reason for it, have a purpose. It's all about your purpose as an author and the effect that you're trying to have. Now, in this case, it's less about sort of rhetorical effect and more about narrative purpose. It's more of a storytelling plot essentials sort of point, and that's what Chekhov's gun has come to mean. If you're curious about the history of it or examples from you know books or TV or movies, there are just so many vi videos, YouTube videos. It's such an easy Google search um, for those of you out there who are curious about the expression. Um, and I think that is, again, to loop back to the first point, 
definitely if you've heard of Anton Chekhov, that's probably why, or that's probably how. Even I, uh, who, you know, I've read a fair amount in my day, not nearly as much as some people, of course, but I do my part. I've never encountered a Chekhov story, and I also will point out here, too, he seems quite popular in the theater, or maybe that his plays or dramatic works were some of the more controversial or interesting, and I do not read a lot of plays. The ones I had to read for school, I, of course, tried, but I don't enjoy the theater too terribly much. I especially don't like musicals, which, if you know me, um, or or a friend or family member, you'd know that for sure, Uh, and I think plays are, are good. I just don't enjoy them that often, and so I don't read scripts or things like that. Um, except for sparingly. So Chekhov's work in terms of the dramas, I have no connection at all. In terms of the short stories, maybe, but I don't remember reading any of his work. So I did treat this collection as sort of an introduction, to be honest. I kind of came in fresh, except for, again, the light Wikipedia and Google searching. I sort of came in with no opinion and no preconceived notions, um, other than hoping that this uh, gun expression would pay off, which we'll get to in a second. I think given the popularity of that expression and my own kind of ignorance going in, again, not having read any of his stuff, I thought I could be the perfect person to lend a few amateur checkoffisms, which is an expression I might have to return to, to the culture. I think this is how I'm going to frame the review. If you've been listening in, you'll know I've been doing more experimental reviews as I do these solo pod episodes. And I think the one I'm going to do for today to review this work is invent new Chekhov's blanks. So we all know Chekhov's gun. If you didn't, I just explained it. Um, But I've tried to invent some new ones that maybe can be applied to his literary works and maybe some other works as well, though, again, with his unique spin on each. And just keep in mind, these are from these three short stories. I'm not claiming this is some, like, universal code for understanding Chekhov's work. These are not, you know, symbols that apply to everything or even archetypes or something. These are just observations I had about these works and kind of the literary elements that he liked to include. Uh, and so, I, yeah, I made three of them. I've prepped three Chekhov's blanks, and we will get into them. Well, let's just get into them right now. The first Chekhovism I'm going to coin here is probably the most obvious in a way, just because one of the stories here in the collection is called The Kiss. But I am going to say we should begin an expression called Chekhov's Kisses, or Chekhov's Kiss. In these stories or in his work, it seems that a kiss or, you know, a romantic moment or gesture is a transformational moment, and it can be, you know, for better or worse, frankly, and that these short stories back that up. Um, There's one character in the titular story, The Kiss, who is this kind of sheepish, embarrassed, um, and he's not a captain, but he's an officer in the military. He's this impish guy. The quote uh, from page 13 is, he's the shyest, most modest, and most insignificant officer in the whole brigade. Shame that modesty and insignificance have to go hand-in-hand like that. Um, But in that story, he has an incidental sort of dark room, unexpected kiss. Uh, And I think it's a case of mistaken identity. That's what he believes. But just in a few pages, he transforms from that person uh, to, on page 13, believing the sound of a kiss, thinking back to the sound of a kiss. And he was gripped by an inexplicable, overwhelming feeling of joy. And he feels these sensations in his body is different. He has a 
kind of more attuned understanding of his surroundings. He feels like a tickle throughout his whole body. Um, in that way, it's kind of a saccharine description. The world transforms to a f- you know one flooded in light. The setting around him changes. It's very beautiful. There's glinting silver here and there. The stars are brighter. And just th- this event sort of changes his worldview. Now, we always try and stay, you know, light on spoilers for whatever that means for literature that's over 100 years old. Um, but let's just say that that moment is eventually sort of undone in the story um, to say, again, not too much with specifics or specificity, but that transformation perhaps doesn't doesn't last. Still, though, it does directly shake up the narrative after it occurs. I think um, in another story here called the two, oh, and see, this, I should get this, this out of the way early. There are tons of Russian names in this collection, for obvious reasons, translated from Russian. I'm going to butcher who knows how many names today, but I will do, again, I'll do my best as always, and have the best of intentions here. There's another story called The Two Valadias, and that is a reference to two of these, well, one's an older man and one's like a a mentor or mentee, actually, to him. Anyway, there's a character in The Two Valadias who is in love with both. She's sort of is married to one but loves the other um and so in in that story the kiss is another transformational moment she has this um paroxysm of shame is what the text says on 39 and she has these agonized blushes she's like you know trying to physically contain herself and later just unloads and has this you know romantic kiss with one of the Valadias. i think in that case it's a transformation to an affirmation of I don't know, disappointment, I guess, that that the life she tries to reach for isn't going to ultimately satisfy her. There's a a brutal transition from that paragraph of her kind of offloading these feelings and having this moment, this kiss, to then the next paragraph begins. Half an hour later, when he had got what he wanted, he sat in the dining room eating a snack while she knelt before him, staring hungrily into his face. And, you know, that adverb there is just perfect, and it's such a disturbing image, is dominance that he has, and just the the brevity of he got what he wanted, and that kind of, it's almost like euphemistic, and I don't know, just feels very creepy. I find that, that whole sentence and that whole line to be such a disturbing transition from her, you know, honest, romantic, I don't know, proclamation or whatever gesture to, uh, to just this really gross transactional thing. Uh, pretty pretty grim. It's a pretty grim image. And so I don't think Chekhov's kisses, we can call them, you know, again, a positive sort of enduring force of romantic honesty. Instead, I think, again, it's just sort of a transformational moment. Whenever you have the kiss, it's sort of a, a break in your life, and it's sort of a, a transitional piece. I think that's probably the best way to think of it. In a sense, too, if you wanted to extend the expression to Chekhov's, I don't know, marriages or Chekhov's romances, um, it, it's pretty clear that in all the stories, romance in general is something that is disillusioning in a way or something to be used and abused, not something for its own, you know, wonderful ends. There's a quote in another story from 48 where there's a character who um, who believes this about his brother. He says, then I had heard that he'd got married so that he could buy a country estate with gooseberry bushes. He married an old, ugly widow for whom he felt nothing and only because she had a little money tucked away. Then he goes on to do cruel things and use up that widow and basically, you know, lead her to her own early death. It's pretty grim stuff again. So I think if you're in a Chekhov story and there's a kiss or a moment of romantic interest, it is a, a cause for concern uh, and it's going to be a, a breaking, changing point in the story.
Um, let's switch from that first Chekhovism to another, and I'm actually going to skip my own outline order here, because I now that I say these things out loud, I think the next one is more thematically connected to what I just said, and that would be Chekhov's carriages, or Chekhov's horses, you know, just general similar modes of transportation. And I wanted to coin this one because his stories favor these characters that have clear transitions. You know, they go from either an unsettled or dissatisfied life to a deeper form of that, or they try and change that or, or sort of break that. And granted, that's a pretty broad description and classification. I think if you're writing a short story, it's going to settle on a character conflict that is a pretty, that's transition or kind of like uh, transitory in a way, I suppose. And again, I know that's a broad description, but these stories make pretty clear and obvious use of these devices of carriages and horses and just trips in general, troikas as they're called in some of the stories. Often these are the brief interludes where characters have crucial realizations or where they get a moment of contemplation or, again, just have a realization. In one of the stories, there's a character, Sophia Love... Oh, shoot, see? Here we go. Until I actually... On the page, I just make up my own pronunciation, but then out loud, I don't want to look and sound a fool. Love... Oh, my gosh, this one's tough. L-V-O-V-N-A. Lavavna. Lavavna is what we're going to go with. See, you guys are working it out with me. I appreciate your patience. Um, Lavavna announces, I'm just going to call her Sophia. She announces right away, first line in the story though, let me go, I want to drive. And so she immediately wants to have this control, this agency over the carriage ride, um, during which she both affirms her marriage and believes in it. And then she renounces it later when she sobers up. She's been drinking some some vodka, I believe, or, you know, some kind of alcohol. And there's a crucial church stop along the way, the symbolism and meaning of which hardly needs unpacking. She's got a crisis of marital faith and a crisis of, I guess, just existential dread in a sense, too. But this sort of carriage ride sets up the entire story and and kind of places her in this transitory, uh, transitional time where she really doesn't know if her decisions have uh, have been worth it or have been the right or proper ones. I think that trip, too, if you wanted to do a, a bit of a deeper, more structural analysis or something with more illusions in it, she almost does go into this land of the dead at the church when she's in there. She goes in alone, which is noteworthy. It's dark, cold, and depressing, more depressing than a graveyard, so the connection there is pretty explicit. There are motionless, frozen figures dressed in black, and they all have pale faces. These are all quotes from pages 32 and 33. Um, but even that isn't quite enough to, to shift her or to shake her. It says on 34, but the damage was done. Now she had to accept things. And so it's almost similar to the kisses in that these carriage rides or these horse rides are when characters have these interjections, moments of realization. But often for Chekhov's characters, for better or worse, it's not enough to like truly transform them. It's just a, it's a glance at it. It's a hint that something could be different. But then often for the worse things do not change. Back in the original or the first story in the collection, The Kiss, the officer whose life is transformed by that kiss um, has to go ride with his uh, unit, his military unit, and the ride is sort of a distractor for him, but also emphasizes the dullness of his life now in relation to, you know, the wondrous romantic event he just had. On page 16, uh, the narration tells us, but there were only long, familiar, boring scenes ahead of him, and then it spends a couple pages just sort of 
delineating or exploring how boring the the military life is, how the routines are dissatisfying and he just can't get his head off of this encounter that he had. He yearns for a trip back to the to the mansion where he had this again anonymous encounter. You know, he thinks about the messenger coming to find him to reinvite him, but then when he looks out no one comes. It's it's a lot of wonderance and a lot of uncertainty in his trip. And while it doesn't allow him to come to any decisions, that, that comes later in the third Chekhovism that I'm about to get to, the, the riding, the horse ride with the, the military unit, is a distinct pause in the story that sort of lets that action calm down and lets him think more, and the return to normalcy is interesting in that way because it sort of settles the narrative in a sense. So I think any time... In a Chekhov story, you see a horse or a carriage ride. Just be prepared for these transition characters to do their maybe not most important reflection, but certainly some of the most critical to the narrative and and pay attention to where that trip goes, essentially. If they take any breaks or stops, it seems significant, especially, again, in that um, that Sophia character's stop in the graveyard or in the, um, the graveyard and the church are just absolutely essential to the, I think, the underlying meanings there in that story. Okay, so we've covered two Chekhovisms, the Chekhov's carriages and horses and Chekhov's kisses. Both hopefully I illuminated a bit and it can help you understand some of his preferred narrative methods and uh, and tricks. I guess it's not really tricks. He's not trying to trick you. These stories aren't that uh, that difficult or challenging. Though this leads us to our final Chekhovism, or the final one I'm going to coin today, and that is Chekhov's beds. Time to rest. Places to rest, but not really. For him, these are rather a place of sorrow and contemplation. A bed is a, and I think in a kind of an obvious symbolic way, yeah, it's a, it's the place of literal rest, so it should be, you know, refreshing, a place to collect oneself and to become anew, to, you know, sleep, literally, to be born anew again, you know, to to, I don't know, lay your weary head down. Uh, for Chekhov, though, it, it is not that, I don't think. I think if we had to coin this phrase for him, it's a place where you kind of relive your regrets and you let your memory, in the most negative way, just control your thoughts and you and you go back over maybe some sorrowful times, which, if that sounds grim, it's not quite so extreme in the story, but it uh, it is not pleasant to be resting in bed, even if, you know, as it's quoted on page 40, I think 40, they are, quote, wide, cool beds with a pleasant, fresh smell. Eventually, in that story and in that same page, there's whiffs of um, stale tobacco, there's rain that's pattering against the window, keeping you up and preventing you from sleeping. So really, I don't think uh, his beds can be interpreted as really glorious resting or restful places in any of the narratives, unfortunately. I'll return once again to the the story of the kiss. The main character, the lovelorn one, Ryobovich, and that's the best pronunciation I can offer, um, he has kind of a fleeting moment of ecstasy in one on page 14. It says, Ryobovich pulled the blankets over his head, curled himself into a ball, and tried to merge the visions fleeting through his mind into one fixed image, but he failed completely. And that's when he's trying to decide who from the party kissed him, and it's a big mystery in his mind, and he's thrilled by it, but also perplexed. Uh, and ultimately, that sort of very childlike image, almost like an infant curl- curling up, you know, into a sort of a, a fetal position under the blankets. 
it just sort of underscores his own fragility and that he is uncertain about, I don't know, what has happened and what it means. And again, it seems almost like the kiss is going to transform him, but I think it's almost a tease of a transformation. The story and the narrative makes that almost certain when it later describes a brief flicker of joy on his face and in his heart that he snuffs out at once, lays on his bed in defiance of fate as though he wanted to bring its wrath down on his head and does not return to the generals. That's the place where he had the encounter, the rendezvous. Um, And so he has this sort of, I don't know, almost pathetic self-harm angle in it or where he's his pride or his frustration is going to disallow him some kind of joy or maybe the chance at happiness or joy and that is certainly a tragic ending or a tragic fate and of course there are other beds in the other stories in the third and final story the character finishes this narration he talks about his brother a lot the gooseberries brother who's obsessed with finding an estate with gooseberries That story ends with the two main characters sort of retiring to bed, where one of them, again, tries to get some sleep. He's exhausted. The other one, though, talks about, thinks and contemplates his sins and his his life's meaninglessness as he sort of rests in that bed. And and that's the one where the rain is hitting against the window, preventing him from sleeping, presumably. And again, in that one, it's though the bed is a literal resting place, it's clear that the characters are deeply unsettled by what they heard, or at least the main character is. And in the, the Tuvadoya story, the Sophia uh, romance story with the two men, the bed is where she kind of resigns herself once she realizes in depression that she doesn't love her husband, married for comfort and money. She, you know, is basically bedridden the day, the entire day. He goes to church and she's just stuck being physically ill we we presume it doesn't really confirm that it's just what she claims but it's a place where she sort of is is nursing or resting and nursing her hurt and uh i think frankly yeah her depression at a life that will not satisfy her so at Chekhov's beds also beware these are places where your your sorrow will become most acute and will sort of weigh you down a real shame you know what's greater than just falling into a bed especially after a long day goodness fresh sheets we should all be so lucky but not for Chekhov and I think based on my light again searching Wikipedia reading checking for his you know history and influence reputation I think these are the elements too and let me get to my wrap up wrap up and review here these are the elements that made him off-putting to a lot of um, early readers who read him in translation apparently the English or British reception to his short stories and and dramas, his plays, was incredibly negative at at the beginning, um, and he didn't have a strong influence. People discounted his story, saying these were about, you know, pathetic characters who didn't deserve attention. They didn't have values or traits worth not only um, replicating or emulating, but just even worth studying or considering. And so I could see that these, all three of these Chekhov-isms I've coined or tried to coin today, deal with transition, dissatisfaction, sorrow, um, and I think, though his stories, I wouldn't say are dreadful or anything. We're not we're not back in Poe. It's not creepy or horrifying. There is a an overwhelming tone of dissatisfaction and sort of disillusionment by the end of all of them. If that appeals to you and you enjoy literature that is, I wouldn't say dour, but certainly down, then I think these short stories or his writings in general might be perfect. And again, I'd just repeat that I didn't find them challenging or or overly gloomy to read there's certainly moments of levity and you know descriptions that 
pick you up as much as I guess push you down though I'm not sure that's the intention of either um and so I think for my review or my rating this is a tough one I mentioned this last week in the Jane Austen pod I, I certainly want to be recommending threes which is by our system an unequivocal like go read it no matter what recommendation but again I think this one is a two I did truly enjoy the short stories. It gave me what I want more than anything, which is the feeling of upon finishing, there were elements I immediately went back and had to think about again, recontextualize, and that's sort of what I love, especially out of a short story. I think in a novel, when you invest that much time and effort, you don't want to have to question half of what you just read and recontextualize. It's such a a large, I don't know, investment that almost feels like getting the rug pulled out from under you. But in a short story... I do love when a conclusion or when the back half of a narrative makes me think, oh, what was the, then what was that symbol at the beginning? Oh, what? And that kind of happened in a lot of these where I thought, oh, there was that page, you know, on, on, and earlier in the story, there's this description that stands out now differently or, oh, maybe that's an image that I should consider more or some foreshadowing or whatever it may be. And these stories did that for me. So I truly enjoyed them. But I, as always, will try and do our rating system compared against all 2020 just media availability, you know, should you seek out his stories instead of going to a movie or watching a television series or, again, just reading the entire history of the literary canon that's available to you. And again, I think it's a two. If you enjoy short stories that are are pretty intriguing and well-made, these will satisfy you, I think, pretty much completely, though the pacing and the topics are, topics are obviously a little outdated, you know, historical fiction at this point, essentially. Um, and the pacing, I think, is, is pretty good, and the stories don't stay overly long. Um, but there were definitely lulls in each narrative. Um, and I didn't come away feeling, I don't know, I guess shaken or transformed or anything. They have kind of a quietness to them, which I appreciated, but didn't leave me didn't leave me rattled. And I think for a three, so far the ones I've rated as threes on the show, the, the Nietzsche we read, the Kenko, um, which, who was the, the Buddhist monk in his reflections, there have only been a few that have have reached that three status. And I think maybe the new marker for me will be, do I still remember, you know, distinct moments and quotes from, from the collection to give it that score from those two, I a hundred percent do. And so I think, again, the threes will be reserved for some pretty lofty, um, lofty achievements. In this case, I think it's a, it's a quite a solid two. And again, if you enjoy short stories, his influence seems very wide reaching, um, and pretty deep. And so if you're curious about, his uh, his liter- kind of place in literary history, then, yeah, I don't think you could go wrong. I, I did enjoy it, and uh, hopefully Chekhov would be proud of the Chekhovisms I've, I've now kind of created in his name and in his legacy. Hopefully those uh, three reflections and the review gave you something to contemplate and think about. Next week, what do we have? We have Coleridge, who is, a, I believe, a Victorian poet around the same time as... I don't know, Wadsworth or something. Poetry, not my favorite, but I haven't read these at all. Um, Sometimes poetry can be the perfect, I don't know, form to sort of move me, but those moments are few and far between, so we'll see. We've covered some poets here before, um, some that were ones and some that were twos, uh, so we'll see if we have a a recommendation for you next week. Uh, But until such a time, we will see you between the classics. 